If you could take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 21. We will finish this morning Luke 21 and move into the very beginning of Luke 22. As you're turning there, I pray that our ladies had an excellent retreat this weekend. I've heard many good reflections already. We have the opportunity of our men's retreat that's coming up very soon. Brothers, I hope you are planning to be a part of that event, which will be held here at church. I know it will be an encouragement to our souls. I'll speak more of that about as we conclude our service this morning. But our text this morning is Luke chapter 21, verse 37, picking up right at the end of the chapter and moving into chapter 22. Follow along with me as I read. And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Let's pray to God. Lord God, we, your people, have gathered this day And Lord, we confess our need. Our need, Lord, continually for the person of Christ and the truth of the gospel. Lord, to walk by faith in Jesus alone and all he has accomplished for us. To walk in repentance of our sins. To walk in obedience, Lord, out of our love for you. Lord, I pray that even as we behold in this text the heartbreak of one of your own turned against you, we would be reminded, Lord, that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ has died even for those who betrayed him. That the solution, Father God, to human sin is Christ. So lead us now in your truth, Father God. May your spirit direct our minds and our hearts in understanding your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Very obviously, we come to this text this morning, which is very strong in the idea of betrayal. But I wondered if any of us have ever stopped to think that Betrayal is something so vicious, so vile, because love has been so deep. You see, betrayal exploits the greatest virtues we experience. If we have an an acquaintance or a relationship with someone where we're suspicious of them and perhaps critical, we're not trusting them, we don't want to give ourselves to trust them, then that person can't really betray us, can they? We, we have a low view of that relationship. Our heart is not invested in them because we have been suspicious, because we have not given them our trust. Real betrayal is only possible when we have trusted and given ourselves to a friendship and loved that person. When you've given your heart 
and your assumption of faithfulness gets trampled upon, it is that betrayal that can almost destroy us. It is those glorious virtues of love and trust that are exploited by betrayal. And that is what makes it so horrifically painful. The good news, brothers and sisters, is that the believer is never alone in our suffering when we are betrayed. God himself was betrayed by his people when they rejected him for a human king all the way back in the book of 1 Samuel. And Jesus was not only betrayed by the masses of Israel, he was betrayed by one of his very own disciples. In fact, the very first time Jesus met Judas Iscariot, he knew he was meeting the man who would one day betray him to his death. But therein is the beauty of God's sovereign purpose. As one commentator said, by means of betrayal, God both teaches us about the frailty of humanity and he redeems humanity itself, repairing the broken and breached trust and restoring the honor and dignity of human life. For God enters the system of our betrayal, our world of betrayal, and in his own being betrayed, he creates a new world. A new humanity where all things are proper and in right of his control. This morning we're returning to Luke and at this point in the text we know that it is Passover. It's one of the most important Jewish holidays of the year where the people commemorate God's deliverance from their slavery in Egypt. Jesus was teaching openly in the temple courts and the religious leaders were furious They wanted him gone, they wanted him dead, but they feared the crowds because Jesus was immensely popular with the people. They might not have found a way, but then they found a co-conspirator from the most unlikely group, and that is Jesus' own disciples. As we go through this text this morning, we're just going to look at something, two points, one from the perspective of the religious leaders, the other from the perspective of Judas. And so the first thing we'll see is that regarding the religious leaders, instead of celebrating God's deliverance, they were plotting God's destruction. Instead of celebrating God's deliverance, they were plotting God's destruction. As we've noted on our previous study of these these chapters, Jesus was not teaching or ministering in secret. Just a few days earlier, he had entered Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey, accompanied by shouts of Hosanna and glory to God in the highest. He was being celebrated by the crowds as the Messiah. He then cleansed the temple of the money changers and vendors booths because it was his father's house and it was meant to be a house of prayer. And every day after that, It says here in verse 37, he was teaching in the temple. Right there in the ceremonial heart of Judaism, he was teaching the gospel. He was manifesting an authority and unlike any other teacher in Israel's history. He demonstrated a wisdom that dumbfounded his critics. He was giving them parables. He was setting forth his own deity. He was defending the resurrection and he was prophesying of the fall of Jerusalem. And he was also prophesying of his own return at the end of the age. And how did the people respond to him? The crowds were drawn to him. They were hanging on his every word. But the second half of verse 37 says, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And that raises a question. Why didn't Jesus just stay in Jerusalem? 
We know he had friends and followers there in the city because in the very next passage, we're going to see how easily he procured a room for the Passover to be celebrated. So why, if he had friends in the city, was he traveling out to stay with friends outside the city? Well, the text does not tell us for sure. But I think the best theory is that it was too dangerous for him to be in Jerusalem after dark. You see, Jesus had been under threats almost his entire ministry. We've seen that repeatedly just in Luke's gospel. The very first time he preached in his home city of Nazareth, they tried to kill him. We see very early in his earthly ministry, the religious authorities were already plotting against him, trying to trick him and trap him in something that would get him arrested. And by this time, many of the priests and scribes and elders, really the entire temple establishment, hated him and wanted him dead. Luke 19.47 tells us they were seeking to destroy him after he cleansed the temple. They challenged his authority in chapter 20, verse 2. They tried to lay hands on him in chapter 20, verse 19. They sent spies to trap him in 20, verse 20. And right as we pick up this text, the religious leaders were actively meeting and plotting how to put him to death. And remember that Jesus knew this was coming. He had told his disciples it was coming several different times. So if this was the reason, if he was not staying in the city of Jerusalem because he was in danger after dark, it's not that he was trying to avoid the suffering that was coming. It's not that he was trying to avoid his crucifixion. He was just trying to make sure that it didn't happen yet. But first thing in the morning, he was right back in his father's house teaching the people. And the city of Jerusalem was swelling with pilgrims from all over Judea who had come for Passover. And this is where we come to one of the great ironies of this text. Passover was one of the pinnacle events of the Jewish calendar. Almost 1,500 years had passed since Moses led the people out of their slavery in Egypt. But the Jews recreated the significance of that event every year. Remember that God sent, had sent Moses and Aaron to lead the people out of Egypt. And, and what God did to bring that about was he sent 10 different plagues upon the Egyptian people, each plague demonstrating God's power and sovereignty over the gods of the Egyptian pantheon. For the 10th plague, God was going to send his death angel to kill every firstborn child in Egypt. But he provided a way of salvation for the Israelites. The Israelites were to slaughter a lamb and they were to put the blood on the doorpost of their houses. And then they were to eat a meal of bitter herbs and unleavened bread and cooked lamb, fully dressed and ready to go. And when the death angel came and when that death angel saw the, the, the lentils of their doorpost covered with the blood of the lamb, he would pass over those houses and all the Israelites would thus be delivered. That was what was being celebrated here 1,500 years later. This is what the people of Israel were flocking into Jerusalem to do, to remember how God spared them from death and delivered them from slavery through the blood of a lamb. And what were the religious leaders doing? As it says in verse 2, they were seeking how to put Jesus to death for they feared the people. Make no mistake that the religious leaders, they would have gladly seized Jesus and put him to death with their bare hands if they were not afraid of the people. As it was, Jesus had gained such popularity with everyone that they had to find a more secretive, a more sensitive way to arrest and execute him. Otherwise, they were going to have a riot on their hands. So they had gathered in secret to plot their sin while one of the most significant religious holidays of their nation was taking place around them. Instead of bowing in prayer 
They were blinded with anger over their lost prophets because Jesus cleansed the temple. Instead of engaging in worship, they were engaging in worry because Jesus was undermining their power and their authority. Instead of being out there teaching God's commandments, they were actively in secret scheming about how to break the sixth commandment of God by committing murder. Instead of rejoicing in the wonders of a God who had saved them by the blood of the Lamb, they were plotting how to shed the blood of the Lamb of God to protect their selfish interests. Brothers and sisters, when we consider these religious leaders, we see a textbook case of how sin can twist and contort a person's thinking process. It's a textbook case. What does sin do to us? Think about this with me. Sin makes us have a laser focus on our perceived need in the moment while at the same time blinding us to the sufficiency of Christ. Our sin makes us think that we know the best way to satisfy our own perceived need and it therefore keeps us from turning to Christ in prayer and asking him to meet our need. Our sin twists our reasoning to the point that we actually begin to justify overtly sinful decisions, making us think that we're doing God's will even though we are breaking God's law. Our sin makes us hate and vilify and run from anyone who would attempt to point out our sin, anyone who would attempt to correct us with Scripture, anyone who would attempt to lead us back to Christ. And our sin minimizes all the potential consequences and all the ways that we are going to hurt ourselves, hurt our witness, and hurt the people we love. Our sin, brothers and sisters, when we give ourselves over to it, when we will not walk in repentance, our sin blinds us to the promise of the gospel, promises of the gospel and it binds us to the appetites of our flesh. And so this is a point for us to reflect upon. Is sin your master? Like the Israelites in Egypt, are you enslaved? Have you convinced yourself that there is no other way to escape, no other way to find relief, no other way to get what you need unless you take matters into your own hands and act in your own best interest, even if it is contrary to Christ's word? Are you this person that even in the midst of a time when God is to be celebrated and honored and magnified for his deliverance, are you a person who is still consumed with getting your way? If that describes you, I want you to understand the good news is Christ can set you free from that. Christ can set you free from your anger free from your pride, free from your bitterness and pain, free from your selfishness. Christ can help you see past your pain. You think your pain justifies how you're feeling, what you're doing, how you're going about things. And I understand that pain may be deep. It may be agonizing. You may be driven to the point where you just need relief, however it may come. I want you to understand what you think will give you relief if it comes by your own hand will only bring you destruction. Christ will bring you relief. He will set you free 
from your lust and your shame. He will set you free from your need for control. He will set you free from your spiritual apathy. He will set you free from what you have erected as an idol in your heart. Free. Christ will. This is what Paul reminds us of in Romans 6, verses 8 through 14. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin reign, therefore, in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Listen to this, verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Brothers and sisters, I want you to hear this, and this is part of where we get into the the doctrine of God's good sovereignty in suffering. I want you to understand this. Jesus loves you enough to bring you into times of intense pressure and temptation, not to crush you, but to reveal the sin that has taken root in your heart. Sometimes suffering is God's means of setting a mirror before you so that you can see what you had previously been oblivious to, so that you can see the root of sin that has taken hold in your heart. And so you can run from that to him, so you can repent of it and come to him, so that you can be cleansed by coming to and knowing Jesus Christ and depending upon him more deeply than you ever have before. Run to Jesus. Repent of that sin. Stop trying to take control and find your own way. That's what the religious leaders were doing, and it was taking them down the path of destruction. It is that very path that Jesus would save us from. Turn to Christ. That takes me to the second part of our text and my second point. Now we look to Judas And we see of Judas that instead of being a vessel for truth and light, he was a tool for betrayal and murder. Instead of being a vessel for truth and light, he was a tool for betrayal and murder. We pick up with Judas here in verse 3. It says he is Judas Iscariot. It means man of Kerioth. That's That's the small town that Judas was from. It was a small town about 23 miles south of Jerusalem. Now, here in Luke's gospel, Judas Iscariot has only been mentioned before this one other time by name. And it's in the list of men whom Jesus chose as his apostles. He is the very last one. In Luke 6.16, it says, and then Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Matthew and Mark do basically the same thing. They only mention Judas when he's mentioned as among the 12 disciples, and then they pick up with Judas when he is going to betray Jesus. But the Gospel of John gives us a little more information. In John 6, Jesus noted that one of his disciples was a devil, and the text tells us really in a parenthesis that he was referring to Judas. In John chapter 12, we learn that Judas was in charge of the disciples' money bag and that he used to steal from it. 
We also see him in John chapter 12 being critical of Mary for pouring a very expensive bottle of perfume on the feet of Jesus and wiping his feet with her hair. Now, there's been a a whole lot of ink spilt by different theologians and pastors who try to figure out why would Judas betray Jesus? He was one of the men specifically chosen by Christ to be part of the 12. He had traveled with Jesus for three and a half years. He had been part of wondrous miracles. He had heard all of the authoritative teachings, and his life had been spared from terrible storms on the Sea of Galilee. He had personally experienced the love and friendship of Christ. When the twelve were sent out to preach the kingdom and to minister in the name of Jesus, Judas was among them. Judas was participating in spreading the gospel. But it seems that by this point, none of that mattered to him. Jesus had chosen Judas, but for Judas, that was evidently not enough. So what was going on with Judas? Was he jealous of the other men or even of Christ himself? Was he merely driven by greed and the love of money? Did Jesus not meet his expectations for an earthly deliverer? Was Judas angry because he had begun to realize that he was not going to hold some position of power at the right hand of an earthly Messiah? The fact is, we don't know for certain. All the Gospels tell us of Judas's betrayal, but none of them attempt to explain the, the internal motives that prompted his treachery. There is one thing, however, that Luke makes sure we know for certain. Judas had an unbelieving heart that was able to be possessed by Satan himself. That's what we see in verse 3. Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. And when it comes right down to it, brothers and sisters, this is all the information we really need. When it came to betraying the Son of God into the hands of the religious authorities... It really doesn't matter what Judas thought or didn't think, what he was wrestling with or wasn't wrestling with. He was possessed by Satan to go about his betrayal. And notice it was not by any rank demon. It was by Satan himself. Lucifer was not going to leave this to one of his underlings. Ultimately, Judas betrayed Jesus because he was possessed by the prince of darkness himself. Now, with the information that Matthew gives us in his 26th chapter, we can piece together what happened next. The disciples had gone back out of Jerusalem into Bethany to eat at the home of Simon the leper. It was likely Tuesday night of Passion Week. It seems that right after Judas watched and complained about Mary anointing the feet of Jesus, that he left that meal and he snuck back to Jerusalem to go find the chief priests. And he found them all together at Caiaphas' house, where they were meeting and plotting. They were looking for a way to take Jesus secretly because of their fear of the crowds. And Judas, quite providentially, arrived with a solution. Look at chapter 22, verse 4 of our text. In verse 4 it says, He, Judas, went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. Judas left Bethany and walked all the way back into Jerusalem to seek out the religious leaders. It's not like the religious leaders found Judas sulking in an alleyway outside a gathering of the disciples and said, hey, let's see if we can get him to do something. No, Judas himself, possessed by Satan, 
took the initiative to seek out the religious leaders. And Matthew 26 verse 15 tells us even that Judas acted like some sort of religious mercenary. He said to the religious leaders, what are you willing to give me to deliver him over to you? Judas was like, hey, I've got someone you want. What are you going to pay me to get him? Now go back to Luke 22 verse 5. Luke 22, verse 5 tells us how the religious leaders responded. They were glad and they agreed to give him money. They were glad. They were overjoyed to be approached with such a clear solution to the problem that they had just been discussing. Here was one of Christ's own followers offering to betray him for a paltry sum of money. In their minds, the fact that one of Jesus' own disciples would turn on him probably validated their hatred. I'm sure the religious leaders were all thinking in their minds and hearts, see, one of his own disciples knows that he's a fraud who needs to be taken out. Matthew 26 verse 15 says that paid Judas 30 pieces of silver. Do you know in Exodus 21, verse 32, 30 pieces of silver is the value of a slave accidentally gored by an ox. The Son of God was bought and sold as a slave among worthless men. This is heartbreaking. Judas spent three years watching and learning and participating in spreading the kingdom message and in displaying kingdom power. The evidence and authority of deity was right in front of him, looking him in the face every day, and yet he still chose the path of treachery. For 30 pieces of silver, Judas betrayed his Lord with a kiss. After all that time with Christ, after observing things that will be celebrated in the sight of God for all eternity, things into which the angels long to look, Judas thought no more of Jesus than he would of a slave gored by an ox. His disdain for Jesus was both shocking and despicable. This is why Mark chapter 14 verse 21 says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Can you imagine being someone that the eternal testimony of Scripture says of you, it would be better for that man to have never been born? Verse 6 in our text tells us that Judas consented and he sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. And we know that that opportunity came two nights later in Gethsemane. And this betrayal was foretold going all the way back to the prophecies made by David. In fact, in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 18, we have Jesus telling us this. Jesus quotes Psalm 41, verse 9, which says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, he has lifted his heel against me. Satan had possessed Judas, but brothers and sisters, make no mistake, God was in control of everything. Satan had possessed Judas, but God had decreed everything that had taken place. And this goes back to why even Pastor Robert led us in that reading from the Second London Confession. We are reminded that our God is not the author of sin, 
Our God is not, is, is not to be associated with sin in any way, and yet in his providence, in his sovereignty, even sin serves our Lord's purpose. Yes, Jesus was killed because he was betrayed, but ultimately he was killed and betrayed because he was appointed to die for our sins. This is what the disciples acknowledged in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 through 28. When they were praying, they said, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's scripture. There were these evil men plotting. And on the day that Christ would be crucified, it would seem that those evil men had carried the day. And yet, even in their sin, God's purpose was being served as the righteous Son of God was giving his life to ransom sinners. That's the wonder of God, brothers and sisters. And it's a reminder how our Lord, how our good and sovereign God redeems something even as awful as betrayal. Now, brothers and sisters, Judas serves as a warning to us. Judas serves as a warning to us. For those who are not Christians, I want you to understand, people who are apart from Christ, people who are unbelievers... We, we tend to want to put in that state of sin, we tend to want to put a lot of conditions on God. You know what? If God would just show me irrevocably himself or some miracle or give me some proof, if God would just answer my prayer the way I want it to be answered, if God would just do this or if God would just do that, then I would believe in him. I want you to understand it's not true. Think of Judas. Judas had a front row seat to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. He personally experienced the affections of Christ. He personally witnessed the miracles of his Lord Jesus. He was one of those saved on the Sea of Galilee in the storms. And yet he still betrayed this Lord that was so clearly revealed to him. Judas reminds us that the sinful human heart is depraved. It is wretched. And I want us to understand that beyond the shadow of a doubt, this very second, this very second, Judas is where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He is in hell. He is separated from God and absent of any of the grace and love and glory of Jesus Christ. He is in a place where he only knows the wrath of a holy God. Because he did not believe. And because he betrayed the Lord. Judas is a warning. Flee the wrath to come and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is our way of salvation. Brothers and sisters, Judas also serves as a warning to believers. Judas reminds us that there are people who walk as disciples, who talk like disciples, 
who minister to others, who know the words of Jesus, who are lost, who are deceived. And sooner or later, the truth will come to light. Sooner or later, their sin and betrayal will reveal them for who they are. Sooner or later, they will show themselves to still be enemies of the very one they claim to profess. Are you in Christ? Are you merely religious or are you trusting in him, believing in him? Are you walking daily in repentance of your sin? Are you walking with the Lord, knowing him through his word, knowing him in prayer, knowing him through the body of believers? Are you walking with Jesus or are you defensive of yourself and your choices? Do you feel like you are justified in taking control yourself That you're justified even in breaking God's law because of your unique circumstances and hardships. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I plead with you, brothers and sisters. Don't wait for the test to be the day before you stand before him in judgment. Test yourselves today. And and hear me. Every one of us are sinners, even in Christ. Today, I'm going to sin much to my grief. You are going to sin much to your grief. But what marks the believer is the believer is active in repentance. The believer acknowledges their sin and knows that Christ is their only hope. That Christ is their greatest love. The believer turns from that sin and runs to Christ. And hates and forsakes the deeds of his flesh. And so I guess... More accurately, I should be asking us to examine ourselves and see, are we walking in unrepentant sin? Are there things you are harboring, hidden in your life, treasuring against the Lord of glory? We talk all the time about the importance of having an assurance of salvation, and it is important. And it is true that once a person truly belongs to Christ, that salvation can never be lost. But I also want you to understand that any time a believer persists in unrepentant sin, you're not meant to have assurance of salvation in that time. In fact, you're meant to question yourself, and those questions are meant to drive you back to Jesus. I plead with you. Examine yourself. Confess your sin. Run to the Savior who holds you in his arms even now and rest in him. I would give a final word to those of us who are believers. There are some of us in this room who have felt the incredible 
sting of betrayal. There are some of us in this room who have been betrayed by a parent in a vicious and horrible way. There are some of us in this room who have been betrayed by a child in a way that cuts you so deeply there are still scars. There are those of us in here who have been cut and betrayed by a spouse in a way that lingers over your mind and your heart like a cloud. There are others who have been betrayed by a boss and a coworker, by a close friend. I want you to understand, as you wrestle with that, as you bear the scars of that, as you labor to recover from that, you have a Savior who knows intimately the sting of betrayal. You have a Savior who has walked that very road of pain. A Savior who laid down his life for a myriad of people who betray him. And in him you will know healing. In Christ you will know peace. In Christ you will learn to rest in the good sovereignty of God. And you will see that even those scars you bear have been part of how your sovereign Lord has shaped you and, and, and brought you into the light and caused you to see things in your own heart. And he's even shaping you into someone who would minister to others in their betrayal and pain. Because that's what Christ does. He turns even betrayal into beauty, into a flourishing of truth and light that pierces the darkness and bids it flee. That is the beauty of our Savior. So draw near to Him. Know Him. Trust Him. Experience the miracle of what Christ can do as you walk by faith in Him. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, You are so good. Your Word is so true. And Father, if we're honest with ourselves, we cannot help but, but look at the religious leaders and, and look at Judas and, and see propensities of our own flesh. To see how sin would, would attempt to twist our thinking, would attempt to divide us from you, Lord, would attempt to, to lead us down a path of destruction. But you are good and you are faithful. And you redeem us from betrayal. Indeed, Lord, oftentimes you redeem us even through betrayal. And so we rejoice in you. May your grace, O oh God, flood over our souls. And may we be reminded, Lord, that you are the great healer. That by being betrayed, you came, Father, to bring us to healing, to wholeness, to righteousness, to adoption as sons and daughters of the Most High God, to a future and a hope, to a heaven where there will never again be betrayal ever again for all time. We hope in you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.